Welcome to the Top of the Pile podcast, where you'll find some of the most interesting authors in conversation about everything from their lives, their books, and their big ideas. From health, science, and true crime, to fiction, history, and romance, we'll bring you fascinating conversations about subjects you never even knew about, and some that you do. You can also get more bookish recommendations by subscribing to the Top of the Pile newsletter. Just visit simonandschuster.com.au to join our mailing list. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. Hi, my name is Anna, and you are listening to Simon & Schuster Podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to have with me in the studio the 2016 Booker-nominated author Ian McGuire, who penned the brutal, bloodthirsty, and absolutely brilliant Northwater, a story of psychopathic seamen on a claustrophobic whaling ship populated by all sorts of vile characters and deeds, a book that I read a while ago, but that I just cannot get out of my mind. Hi, thanks, Anna. That's great to be here. Now, before we go to some specific questions, I thought that maybe I'll just ask you uh, if you could tell us what can readers expect from The North Water? Uh, well, The North Water is a historical novel. Yeah, it's set in the 1850s uh, and it mainly takes place on board uh, an Arctic whaling ship making the voyage from Hull in England up to um, Greenland and uh, they're trying to get back. doesn't go according to plan. So uh, the novel is a story about a murderer aboard that whaling ship and, and the consequences of that, of that happening. Um, I mean, a whaling voyage was always dangerous and violent, but this particular voyage goes very wrong. I found the whole aspect of sort of the moral dilemmas, and not only the moral dilemmas of your characters, but also the moral dilemmas that you leave us reader with um, quite fascinating. Mm. Um, it seems like you just got to the point where you, you sort of stripped your characters of any kind of civilization and civility, uh, if I can yes. if I can describe it this way. Yeah. You left them on this frozen sea and then you sit back and you watch what's going to happen. Um, and I wonder what were you hoping were going to happen to their readers? What, how when you were writing a book, how did you imagine the readers were going to react to that? Um, I think you. I think you. The the extent to which you imagine the reader's reaction is is limited. Actually, um, I mean, I think I I do think about the readers, and I I'm concerned about how the readers' reaction, how the readers react. But my concern is mainly to to maintain a certain level of interest. Um, so it's quite sort of practical. And particularly to do with with plot and so on. So, so my well, when I'm thinking about the readers, I'm thinking about what's what's how am I going to make sure that they're interested in the next page and the next page. And so, you this sense of moving them through the novel in that sense. So, I I do I have to admit spend less time thinking about the kind of moral dilemmas that I might throw the readers in. But I do I mean in terms of the characters. I I put the characters in into difficult moral situations. So I suppose you're right that by extension, then the the reader is plunged into that similar mm. situation. Mm. Now, just staying a little yes. bit with the theme of um, morality, your opening line of this book, which is I think something that is going to stay with a lot of readers for a long time, "Behold the man." 
does have a lot of literary um, allusions. You've been mentioning Cormac McCarthy, yes. but I have to say that for me personally, when I read this first time, Bible and was my first yes, kind of a, right. uh, yeah. a reaction to it. And there is more, some more of these religious overtones through the book. Yes. Um, just wondering what what were you, what, what is the role of religion and, and belief in this story? Yes, yeah, and I mean, you're right, the, Behold the Man comes from the Bible as well as well as from uh, Cormac, Mac- or as echoing the opening of Cormac MacArthur's Blood Meridian. So it's the it's the English translation of Echo Homo, the, the words that Pontius Pilate says when he mm-hmm. presents Christ to the crowd. Um, so there is a, yeah, I mean, there is a sort of religion crops up in the book uh, but no, religion comes in in various ways, and and I did I do think for me, you know, when I think about the book, I think the religious aspect is is quite significant for me as you know when I when I look back on what I was trying to do. So it comes in in various ways. I mean, it's in in that in that very opening line, but then it comes uh, one of the characters, Otto, who's a harpooner, um, is a an adherent to Swedenborgianism, which is this kind of mystical nineteenth century version of Protestantism. Um, but and then, you also have Patrick recovering with that um, missionary. That's um, right. Yeah. yeah, towards the end of the novel, um, Patrick, someone one of the main characters, encounters a missionary, a Christian missionary, in in, in on Baffin Island. So he spends quite a, f- a fairly long period with him. So all of those moments, I think, are, for me, are significant. I suppose go back to the previous question about this kind of morality and the moral dilemma and. I mean, I think the the world of the novel is, on the surface at least, a world which is stripped of moral meaning, um, in which sort of these human distinctions between good and evil seem to have seem to have vanished almost, and we're in a kind of world of animality, and and whoever's strongest or most vicious wins. But so for me, the the moments where religion crops up are moments where you know there's kind of the question about well, is there anything more? Is there a way within this kind of um, pared back, very brutal environment then we can discover a kind of meaning? We can discover some sense of there is a difference between good and evil and there is some reason why good should be preferred to evil. So I think both of that, but I think the novel, I mean, I wouldn't call the novel a a religious novel in the sense that that it comes to any conclusions about that, but it puts religion and religious language into the mix. And I think for me that was really important that I didn't want it to be, although some people have read it as quite kind of nihilistic, uh, all about sort of stripping back meaning, I wanted there to be at least a small strand of this kind of religious thought um, just to offer a kind of alternative, even if it seems a kind of slightly frail Mm. and um, not altogether convincing or not always convincing alternative. I I wanted it to be there so that the novel was had different layers and different mm. sort of possibilities within it. Yeah, and that actually leads me to something else that I always wonder about uh, Northwater. I mean, again, I know that it has been often classified as a historical novel, and I have to admit that personally I have this sort of love-hate relationship <laughs> with historical novels. Because on one hand, I find them fascinating, uh, trying to put yourself in the shoes of people that are no longer around. Mm. On the other hand, I find it sometimes ethically problematic about presenting something as a person or event that cannot defend or explain. We're just sort of imagining what it's going to be. Um, And I know 
while I, I suspected from a novel that you have tried to tell us something more universal and contemporary, even though you use the historical novel. Is that the case? I think that's probably right, yes. I mean, I, I, mean, there, I guess there are different, maybe two different kinds of historical novel to generalise. I mean, there's a historical novel which is set in the past and refers to actual people um, and tries to imagine what their, you know, what their inner lives were like or the psychology of those particular characters, why they did what they did. But my novel isn't of that kind. I mean, it has a historical setting which I tried quite hard to be to make accurate, but the characters are fictional. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that certainly allows me maybe to a little more freedom um, in terms of how I draw the characters and how I develop them. Um, and, and certainly, I think there are. I think well, I think with any good historical novel, it's as much about the present as it is about the past. Um, I think inevitably that's the case if you're if you're really sort of trying to be true to your material, but you're you're a person, you know, a contemporary person living right now in the 21st century. So you have to you can only see the past through your own perspective. Um, so inevitably, I think if you write about whenever it is the 17th or 16th, or in my case, the 19th century, you're also writing about 21st century. So I think I think yeah, I mean this. It goes back again to these kind of moral questions, I suppose. Um, I mean, I think the question of where do you where do you find meaning? How do you differentiate between good and evil? Where do you where do you, how can you construct um, some kind of truth? Is are still very sort of prescient, important questions in the twenty first century, and maybe even more important than they were in the nineteenth century, yeah. possibly. And again, I think the interesting thing that sort of. Um, binds these to me a lot of these times together is this whole theme of violence through mm. your for your novel mm. and uh much has been said again about how violent it is why so much violence why do you think it was so necessary in this in this particular novel um i i think the main reason for that is that it becomes or became a novel which was about violence. I mean, that that became a thematic becomes a thematic concern of the novel. Uh, I mean, the it's about it's about the whaling industry or set on a whaling ship. So there's a certain amount of violence which just is inherent in that industry. I mean, especially from a contemporary perspective, just the business of capturing, killing, chopping up whales was very very violent. Um, but then I I wanted to add other things on top of that. So. I, there are at least sort of three different forms of violence working their way through the novel. One is the violence of the whaling industry and also the kind of not only just killing whales but killing other animals, seals and polar bears and so on. Um, so that's going on and that's also, I suppose it's worth remembering that that's, you know, it's part of a business, uh, part of kind of 19th century capitalism um, and that the kind of business side of that is quite important. And then on top of that, there's the violence of Henry Drax, who's the murderer. So it's a kind of psychopathic violence, sort of often sometimes kind of sexualized in his case. But also beneath them all is a kind of, um, well, a sort of governmental violence, I could you could say, which which is crops up in a kind of long flashback to the Indian mutiny of 1857, which Patrick Sumner, who was the ship surgeon, was involved in. So I wanted to layer those kind of violence forms of violence over each other. I mean, the Indian Mutiny, reading about it as it was extraordinarily violent, um, the British on both sides was amazing acts of sort of brutality um, as the British tried to re re 
gain control of India. Uh, so there's that kind of violence. There's the violence of the whaling industry. Then there's the individual violence of Drax. Um, and I suppose one thing I was hoping to do is just to sort of raise questions about the different those different forms of violence and what how do we respond to them and why do, why is some why are some forms of violence more acceptable and why does why are some of them so abhorrent and where do we draw the line between them? The other thing that going back to these layering, which is very obvious in your book, and again, it's something that as I'm reading more reviews or hearing more talks, I'm realizing how many of these allusions to literary mm. world I have missed, how many I actually seen, but how many are there? <laughs> Just wondering, since you finished the book mm. and you've been talking to a lot of readers, did you find anybody pointing to things that you didn't realize that were kind of, I guess, living in, in your writing unconsciously that you're now aware that that are there, that other people are seeing? Yes, definitely. I mean, I, I, I was aware that there were certain things feeding into the novel, uh, you know, uh, Moby Dick being the most obvious one, and I was I, I was conscious um, at certain times of sort of dropping hints or using other other writers, Cormac McCarthy being the most obvious one. But but certainly, yeah, when I read when I've read reviews and people have referred to other writers, you know, Conrad has come up quite a lot, and and I I definitely wasn't thinking explicitly or consciously of Conrad as an influence, but at the same time. Conrad was a really important writer for me at a certain time, you know, in my 20s or when I was an undergraduate, he was probably my favorite writer. And Heart of Darkness was a really important book to me in terms of just becoming excited about literature. And I still think it's a it's a brilliant, brilliant book. So I'm sure those those kind of influences are there. But it's just that my my unconscious mind is stocked with all this stuff and they just pop out without without me knowing. I have to say my first thought when I started reading the North Water, or I guess when I got to the part where we get some revelation about Patrick Sumner, mm. I was thinking Lord Jim. Yes, Conrad. yes, exactly. So these Lord two characters Jim. had a lot of compromised characters trying to make sort of sense out of their past. And yes. No, I've always found, I mean, Lord Jim, the whole idea behind Lord Jim, I think is such a powerful one that someone has sort of done this shameful, shameful thing that they can't shake off and then at the very end of that novel, he sort of does, but it, with kind of catastrophic circumstances. So I think you're right. I mean, it, that is definitely an echo, but again, not not necessarily a conscious one because I haven't. I mean, I read Lord Jim, gosh, twenty years ago. I've never reread it, but but I've always remember. I have a strong memory of that of that theme and that idea of shame and someone who's dogged by this disastrous decision that he's made in the past. What was the most surprising thing that you discover while you were researching the book? The stuff, whole stuff about the Indian mutiny, which which comes in fairly early on. There's a long backstory about um, what happened in 1857. I didn't know anything about that really, and I was amazed at the um, at what happened. I mean, amazed at the kind of um, viciousness of that of that conflict on both sides. The kind of way that civilians were were sort of slaughtered on both both sides so that was a real eye-opening thing I mean I kind of when I was thinking of Patrick Sumner I wanted him to have something in his past but I didn't know what it was so I was actually just looking around sort of in the 1850s what could have happened that he could have been involved in and I stumbled across the Indian mutiny and I was kind of amazed by what what was there. Mm. Now if you had a chance to make your one of your characters alive, hopefully it's not Drax, <laughs> and you could ask him one question. What character would it be and what would you like to know from him? 
I would call Drax back to life as, as long as there's some kind of bodyguard or some kind of security element around. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm curious, although I deliberately in the novel didn't explain where he came from. I think I am kind of curious. <laughs> where he came from. Yeah, well, I'm aware or where, yeah, what he'd been up to before then, um, what his previous career was like, because I sort of began to write that and then decided, made a conscious decision not to. So I had sort of ideas. So it'd be nice to have someone sort of fill that in for me. <laughs> and what sort of that will, I guess, follow from this? What scene in the book you found most challenging to write on? The ending, definitely the ending. Um, because it was, I think endings are always hard because you're trying to kind of tie up certain loose ends without it seeming too artificial and you're trying to strike a note because I think people remember, I mean, the end like the beginning is so important, so you're trying to strike a right note. So I went through the ending number of times um, and I, I finally I, I finally found a way I wanted to do it, but it was two or three versions. And when the first version I sent to the editor had a, had a well, not completely, but a, a quite distinctly different ending. Um, so, so that was the toughest to write, but um, I don't think that's that unusual. I think people, beginnings and endings, people sweat over them. Mm. And uh, the other thing I want to ask you, which goes back again to the, to the books um, and the literary illusion, if there was one book that you could reread right now, mm. what would you like to read again? What, <laughs> what is the classic that you would go back to? I, I guess the classic, well, I guess the book that pops up into my head, which I'll say is, is War and Peace Tolstoy, which is the, um, I suppose, because in some sense, there's, there's so much in that book. Um, there's so much about, well, domestic life, and military life and so on. So it's such a rich book. But I think the thing I've always, the reason I always loved it when I read it is I think people, you know, it's a classic novel and you can sort of think, oh, it's a bit off-putting, it's a bit hard work. But when she, you want, it's, it's like sort of, it's so accessible and so enjoyable, that novel that you just sweeps you along. So there's a kind of, I think there's a kind of something about the pleasure of reading that long immersive novel that would take me back to it. All right. And my last question, which I know is a question that most people that read The North Water would want to ask you, what's next? Uh, yeah, another novel set um, in the mid-19th century, so about 10 years after um, The North Water. So it's a novel set in Manchester where I live, and it deals with um, an early form of Irish nationalist um, terrorism, for want of a better word. So the Fenian Brotherhood was a precursor organization to the IRA. And so I'm writing about, they were active in, in the Northwest England in the 1860s. So I'm, act, I'm writing about that. And the novel starts with a, a historical fact, which was uh, three men were publicly hanged, three Fenians were publicly hanged for the murder of a policeman in Manchester in 1867. So the novel starts with that, then it imagines possible consequences. Great. Well, you certainly rocked our world <laughs> with the North Water. And I can't wait for the next one. And I know I'm not the only one. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Anna. Thank you.